this is about real life. And uh, I hope that actually in this passage tonight, that you actually see there's a lot of good news when we actually bring all of the darkness of our lives to bear in Scripture, when we bring it out and say, like, all right, this is who I am. Like, my biggest problem is not just that I can't get all my work in. That's not our biggest problem. That's not what we need Jesus for. All of us have much darker stories um, than any of us want to admit to ourselves and especially to others. And right here, you have one of the darkest stories of any of God's servants. Abraham's followed God out of the land, into the promised land, or towards the promised land. He's done these remarkable, faithful acts. uh, And this is what happens next. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is it that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she was my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we encounter one of the harder stories in Scripture. I pray that you would be with us, that you would teach us, dear God, that we could be honest about ourselves, and we could place who we really are before you and see what you have to say to us, dear God. Teach us, Holy Spirit, be with us. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, one of my favorite, or quickly becoming one of my favorite writers is a guy named Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk. He wrote a book called Fight Club that was later made into a movie. And I've been reading some of his nonfiction over Christmas. And he writes about how he ended up making or writing the book that Fight Club's based on. And this is what he says about it. Before I started writing Fight Club... I worked as a volunteer at a charity hospice. My job was to drive people to appointments and support group meetings. There they would sit around the other people in a church basement comparing symptoms and doing New Age exercises. Those meetings were uncomfortable because no matter how hard I tried to hide, people always assumed that I had the disease they had. There was no discreet way to say I was just observing. I was a tourist waiting to take my charge back to the hospice. So I started telling myself a story about a guy who haunted terminal illness support groups to feel better about his own pointless life. And in so many ways, these places, support groups, 12-step recovery groups, they've come to serve the role that organized religion used to. We used to go to church to reveal the worst aspects of ourselves and our sins, to tell our stories, to be recognized, to be forgiven, to be redeemed and accepted back into our community. This ritual was our way to stay connected to people and to resolve our anxiety before it could take us so far from humanity that we would be lost. In these places, I found the truest stories in support groups and hospitals. Anywhere that people had nothing left to lose, that's where they told the most truth. And I think what Polonik's recognizing is the same thing that Stanley Hauerwas is recognizing, which is this. A religion that's just warm fuzzies 
and doesn't deal with the real harshness and darkness of life, the insecurities and the fears that we all harbor in our hearts, that we're afraid to give voice to, we don't admit about ourselves, the things that we think, if we give voice to, maybe God doesn't have an answer, like we're asking questions too hard for Him. Uh, Harawas and Polonic alike are actually commenting on the emptiness of that kind of Christianity, the kind of Christianity where it's good and it's sweet and it's wonderful. When it's 72 degrees and sunny, you've done well in your midterm and you have a boy or a girl who likes you and your team's winning. That's not a very helpful Christianity if that's the only time God has something meaningful or positive to say or do or be in our life. It's just, it's just not helpful. A Christianity that a God that we only find favorable in those kind of circumstances is really worthless. Not saying that there aren't good times and we shouldn't be appreciative. We actually absolutely should. But we need a Christianity and we need a religion. We need an answer for the fact that that's not the way life is most of the time. And so in Polonic and his experience in the church is that the church has become so sentimental that it's no longer a place where we can freely grapple with the darkness both in us and also done to us. And what's interesting is note the place where he finds people most free to be honest with their stories. They're the places where people are confronted with the inevitability of their death. There's nothing that's going to place the circumstances of your life in a more accurate perspective than contemplating the unstoppability, but also the possible immediacy of your death. That puts your fears, that puts your GPA, that puts your ski weekend, that puts practice, that puts workouts and dreams... It puts your body, and it puts your friendships, and it puts your fights, and it also puts your pleasures all into perspective really quickly. And in this story, what I want you to see is a Christianity that's not a religion of sentimentality. Um, if, if Christianity is something you're skeptical about, maybe you come here tonight and you're not sure what you think about it, what I hope you see is that it's gritty and it's dirty and it deals with who we really are. And the, the points tonight are very simple. Life presents us with really difficult circumstances. Really difficult circumstances. Where the ethical path is just hard and gray. And we don't always know what to do. And the reality is, we don't really respond very well in those difficult circumstances. Sometimes we do, a lot of times we don't. A lot of times we're really good at justifying the way we respond, but the reality is we're doing a lot of hurtful and selfish things when, when hard things come into our life. Life is hard. We don't really respond to the difficulty of it very well. And this is the good news. God's still faithful. That's the story of Genesis 12, 10 through 20. That's the story of all of Scripture. Life's hard. We really don't respond to the difficulty very well. And God's still faithful. First thing is this in the text. And it goes against what probably people think about Tim Tebow, or some people think, which is this. <clears throat> Following Jesus doesn't mean you win every game. I don't think Tebow believes that, for the record. I think some people think Tebow believes that. But following Jesus doesn't mean you get the GPA you want. It doesn't mean that you get a mate that you've dreamed for. It doesn't mean that your kid's not going to have Down syndrome. It doesn't mean those things. It doesn't mean that the circumstances around your life are just going to come into conformity for your dream. My little brother loves Jesus. And guess what? His 29-year-old wife is starting chemo this week. She loves Jesus. She's just as faithful as Tim Tebow is. She's not winning the Super Bowl this year. This is Abraham, man of faith, right? Did, the, did crazy things for God, right? Just verses beforehand. Packed up his whole household, his whole family, everything that he had, left his land, left his family, left the region, 
following, he didn't even know who God was at this point. I mean, God, we're told later, actually, that Abraham was an idolater before this. He worshipped another God. And all of a sudden, there's this voice that says, Abram, I'm starting with you to fix the world, pack up everything and leave. And I'm going to show you later where I'm leading you. But I just need you to leave right now. Okay? He did that. This is like massive acts of faith right here. Right? He did crazy things for the Lord. He did the hard thing. He's invested. And what happens next? He followed the Lord's call. Famine. He no longer can feed his family. That's what happens next. And that's why my first point is simply this. Following Jesus is not a promise that the circumstances of your life will be easy. It's not a promise that your wildest dreams will come true, that everybody's going to love you, that you're going to get the job that you want, that your loved ones won't suffer that families won't have promises broken, that people won't lose their jobs. If you do everything God asks of you, if you follow Jesus, that's not a promise that you're going to win the Super Bowl. That's not the promise of the God of the Bible. And what's, what's really sad about the health and wealth gospel crap that gets preached is that they're actually underselling what God's doing. Jesus is not promising. If you follow Jesus this quarter... He is not promising that everything you hated about Stanford in your life last quarter will go away. He's not making that promise. Life presents us with difficult circumstances. Secondly, we don't really respond to him very well, at least very often. Notice what happens. There's a famine in the land, so Abram goes down to Egypt. This is logical. The Nile River Basin is a place that's kind of more famine-proof than other places in the ancient Near East, so he does it. And he's about to enter Egypt. And he sees complications coming, and so he conspires. Sarah, listen, you're beautiful, and they're going to want you, and it wouldn't really be beyond kind of these Egyptians to just kill me to get to you. So here's our plan. We're going to say that you're my sister, and we're going to see how it goes from there. And most likely what it was in that time, if, uh, if, if a girl didn't have her father or her father and mother together, a brother would actually function as someone that kind of Um, handle suitors so he could kind of be a barrier to her to the rest of the world but things get complicated apparently she's so beautiful that everybody starts talking about it the pharaoh gets excited about it and he takes her into his house which actually means he's taken into her harem which means that they're sexually involved what happened? I mean how did they get to this point? this is how they got there Abram stopped trusting God His goal of self-preservation outweighed his trust in God. And here's the this is the most difficult part about the text. It actually made sense. Right? Here's Abraham. God said, Abraham, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to make you into a great nation and bless the world through you. Right? For Abraham to become a great nation, he has to be alive. He doesn't have any kids at this point. And he's saying, I've got to survive this ordeal. And they'll kill me if they think I'm her husband. So we got to figure something out, Sarah. He does something that's very logical in this circumstance. It made sense. Because he knows, if I die, God's whole plan fails. He's actually even thinking about God's covenant promises at this point and saying, like, i got to do this for God to continue His work. He's thinking, God hasn't seen this coming, so I've got to make accommodations. You know, this is us. This is really us. Following Jesus is frightening. Really, really frightening. Following Jesus stands in stark opposition to the world. It, 
some in some ways, if if you're coming here tonight and you're not a Christian and, and you're listening and you're analyzing all of this, I hope that one thing you hear from RUF constantly is that we're not sugarcoating the Christian life and we're not sugarcoating the Bible. We're not hiding the hard parts of the difficult areas. If nothing else, I actually want to demonstrate respect for you by addressing the hard things about following Jesus. And following Jesus in hard circumstances is hard. And the reality is, a lot of times it's just easier not to. That's what Abram is faced with, with that reality. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. He doesn't call us to like people like us. He doesn't call us to hang out with people who annoy us um, so that we can think highly of ourselves for hanging around with them. He doesn't call us to use people to our advantage, even though they irritate us a little bit. He calls us to love our enemies. Love our enemies. Roommates, friends, family, the people that we hate. And an enemy is not somebody that's simply difficult. It's someone who you have a justified reason for hating. That's why they're an enemy. That's what an enemy is. not an annoying person. Someone for whom you have a justified reason for hating. And Jesus calls you to love them. You see, it's just easier not to. Jesus calls calls us to give away a lot of money. Not a little bit, so that we can feel better about ourselves. And not once you have what you perceive to be a lot of money. He calls us to give away a lot of money to the people in need. Lots of it. Right now. Even though you're a poor college student. And I've probably said this before, and it's kind of clear, stating the obvious... But giving away money sucks. Because with money, you can buy stuff, and stuff is awesome. (laughs) And if you give away your money, you don't get stuff. (laughs) Following Jesus is hard. You get less stuff if you follow Jesus. Do you know that? It's just easier not to follow Him. Jesus calls us to love and serve orphans and widows, the displaced, the disenfranchised. These people have nothing to offer you if you help them. It's really just easier to avoid them. He calls us to sexual purity. We're not going to leave out the unpopular things. He calls us to sexual purity with our body, within our minds, with others, by ourselves. Jesus calls us to place all things sexual in and only into a marriage covenant. That's hard. It's just easier not to deal with Jesus on that one. Jesus calls us to think about other people and think of them as more important than us. That's almost impossible at Stanford. The message, the air that we breathe here is, is, these are the elites, right? Jesus says you have to think about other people as more important than you. The homeless and the orphans and the widows and the weak and the despised and your enemies. We're supposed to think that they're more important than Stanford grads. It's just easier not to deal with that. Jesus calls us to sobriety. Not away from alcohol altogether, but definitely away from drunkenness. Sometimes it's just easier to go into it. Jesus calls us to confess sin to one another. Not, again, not just that I'm struggling with getting my studies done, but the real stuff that is in our lives. That's terrifying. That's out of control to lay that on the table in front of other people. It's hard to follow Jesus, and it's a lot of times just easier not to. Jesus calls us to be truth-tellers, not truth-benders, not truth-interpreters, but truth-tellers. That means telling the truth about the way we perform our schoolwork in the classroom, whatever it is, the things that, well, are like cheating, but we can find ways to describe it as not cheating. 
Jesus calls Christians to go and tell the professor, I did not perform honorably on this, on this assignment. Okay, it's just easier not to follow Jesus on that one. He calls us to forgiveness. It's really a whole lot easier not to follow Jesus on that one. Following Jesus, trusting God, is hard, and the reality is it's just easier not to. And that's why out of fear and pragmatic self-preservation, we're just not really different from Abraham. Choosing the easy path instead of trusting Jesus as we walk, the difficult path. The reason we don't do the hard things Jesus has called us to is because we believe that he's not strong enough or good enough to take care of us in the midst of those hard circumstances. And so fear drives us into self-absorption and self-preservation and a pragmatism that's not guided by what's right and what is just, but it's guided by what helps me avoid difficulty. What can I do to mute the pain in life? I'm going to let the answer to that question guide the way I work because that's easier. That's the path that Abraham chose. It's the path we often chose, and it makes sense because it's so much easier. And you might be asking now, you might be feeling like, all right, you've actually made a case for not following Jesus. But the text keeps going. And it makes this point. That pragmatic self-preservation impulse in us wreaks havoc in our lives and in the lives of everyone around us. It's actually destructive, even though it's easier at first. The text doesn't say it directly, but I think we can safely assume, I don't think it's a stretch, that asking your wife to act as your sister and then seeing her taken into Pharaoh's harem is not the path to an emotionally healthy marriage. He prostitutes out his wife. His faithless plan of self-preservation costs his wife deeply and the people who he was afraid of. It actually affects them. God inflicts a curse on Pharaoh and his household. Plagues are common punishment by God that he has on someone who sins against God's people in the Old Testament. Abraham's faithless self-preservation wrecks his marriage and wrecks the people around him. So it's easier to not follow Jesus in these areas. What's shown in this passage is what's also true in our life, which is it's easier at first, but it actually brings havoc into our lives. What happens... Okay... What happens when you see, you see a friend, a roommate, someone in sin, unrepentant, not dealing with it? God calls you to go and love your brothers and sisters and confront people in, in their junk, right? Okay, that's messy. It's really easy not to do. We all really like being passive-aggressive. We love it, right? What happens when we refuse to go into other people's lives and make them deal with their sin? They languish in it. They suffer for it because we've chosen the easier path. What happens when we believe enough money will keep pain and risk away from our lives? Everybody else around us suffers. What happens when you exercise and exercise and exercise and focus on food and manage your diet because you want to craft the perfect body because you believe when you have the perfect body that you'll actually be beautiful? What happens when you pursue that instead of trusting God that actually character is what beauty is? Not only do you wreck your own body, you actually become the oppressor. Because all of a sudden, you've created the body that's actually oppressing everybody else, which you're already you're not happy with, as now it's unhealthy, and you're the person everybody's looking at and says, I've got to look like them. You're the oppressor now. Do you see you're actually bringing pain into your life and also more pain into everybody else's life? 
What happens when we retreat from the realm of real personal face-to-face relationships and live in a virtual world of sexuality and false intimacy? You wreak havoc on your marriage. Even if you're not married yet. I mean, in our house, the simplest illustration is this. My children think hoarding toys is the path to happiness. That is the single largest source of discord and unhappiness in our family. Is the girls trying to get everything they want? This is, I mean, this is an illustration. No political or economic commentary right here. We want to be equal opportunity haters in RUF. Anne Rand got it wrong. Self-preservation is not going to save us. It's killing us. Big business wants to get as much money as possible. So they're buying off politicians and they're sticking it to the middle and lower class. Politicians want money. And they want to stay in office. So they're enacting ridiculous policies that trying to please both sides, the one percenters and the 99 percenters, and they're digging the hole deeper. And the 99 percenters, right, also want their fair share of the American dream. They blame the government and they blame the big businesses for stealing it. So they took out loans they couldn't afford on houses they shouldn't have bought, right? And they're collapsing on those loans and the government doesn't know what to do. Everybody is out for their own. Do you see that the problem is not the one percenters or the 99 percenters or the government? The problem is our hearts, Policies aren't going to fix this. That's not the problem. The problem is everybody's fighting for theirs because their goal is self-preservation because I've got to get enough resources and things around me and accomplish my own dreams for my life because that's the path to happiness. And following Jesus is hard. It's much easier to make a lot of money. Just buy the stuff you want and build houses on lots far away from everybody else so you don't have to be in messy relationships. All of our acts of preservation, they're born out of the sneaking suspicion that God can't be trusted. And our faithlessness is not only evil, but it actually brings pain into the lives of people around us. And this is the good news. God's still faithful. That's the story of Genesis 12, 10 through 20. It's the story of the rest of Scripture. And God's still faithful. God's faithful to His promises. Abraham was delivered. How was he delivered? The Lord afflicted Abram and his house, uh, Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Abram called, and Pharaoh, excuse me, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is it you've done to me? He's upset. Verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abraham, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Why didn't Pharaoh just kill Abram? You have to ask that question when you read this. The reason it didn't is because God intervened. Pharaoh is terrified of God. He's angry at Abram. The logical choice would have been to kill Abram. But Pharaoh knows God's involved in this, that God's intervened. God delivers Abraham. It wasn't just a good turn of forgiveness by Pharaoh. It was intervention by the Lord on behalf of Abram and in spite of Abram. In these circumstances, in the midst of Abram's sin of unbelief, The Lord not only preserved him, here's the shocker. The Lord actually blesses him. He gets all this stuff. For her sake, Pharaoh dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep, and he gave him oxen, and donkeys, and servants, and camels. God didn't just deliver Abram. He actually blessed him. The answer to our self-preservation... The way God deals with them, He says, Man, you've brought so much havoc into your life, but you need to know I'm still faithful to my promises. It's my character that is your security. 
What we've got to deal with in this text, this is what Christians really need to feel uncomfortable about. Everybody needs to feel uncomfortable about in this text. Today, the church, Christians today, have set up organizations for imp- putting men in prison who do what Abraham does. I've been involved with these organizations. We went over to Greece and we dealt with people who sell women into sexual trafficking and tried to get those men in jail. Abram is dealing in sexual trafficking with his wife. That's actually what's happening on this passage. That's how ugly it is. And there's no other way, there's, there's no other way to cover over that. Why does God still use somebody like him? The reason this passage is here is because our hope is not Abraham's goodness. It is God's goodness. And this is a poignant way of displaying that, is it not? Jesus doesn't like you because you're a good person. He likes you because he promised he would like you. We're not different. We're not better. We're not more deserving than anybody. We're simply an object of the Lord's promised mercy. It's the Lord's faithfulness. And it's the, it's the power, it's his ability, and it's character that gives us security. A couple of points of application to close real briefly. If you're a Christian and you're strong in the faith, um, be assured and be comforted that your strong faith today is not the cause for confidence and hope in your life. If things are going well for you, praise Jesus, I'm glad. Be comforted and be assured that the fact that you feel strong today is not your cause for confidence or hope. I'm glad for you. But it is good news that your strong sense of your own faith is not your hope and security and confidence because all of our faiths flag at different times. And, and wane and weaken and get poisoned with doubts. And it's good news that the fact that you just happen to feel happier about Jesus today because you listen to some cool music earlier today is not really your source of hope and security. The person of God is your source of hope and security. If you're struggling, if you're constantly looking into your life's mirror and you're disappointed in your belief, you're struggling in your faith, You identify with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, I want to do the right thing, but I don't do the right thing. The wrong thing that I don't want to do, I end up always doing. If that's you, and you're struggling with just believing that God's real, and you're worried that maybe sin and death and just the trajectory of my life, that is who I am, that's not going to change, here's the application of this text, be confident. You're exactly the kind of person for whom God is faithful. It's His goodness and His grace and it's His promise and His unwavering commitment to you that is your confidence. Not the way you happen to feel today. Not the struggles you have today. Not the struggles that are going to last for months and maybe even years. God's saying, no, don't you get it? It's not how you feel right now. And it's not even your record. It's my promise and my character that is your hope and security. This is not a religion of sentimentality. That's only true and strong when you're excited. This is a religion that goes into the darkness of our stories and our junk and our addictions and our abuses and our anxieties that we're so afraid to admit to ourselves and to others. And it deals with it. This is actually why we don't always sing. We sing both happy and sad songs intentionally in RUF. If you actually read the Psalms, which are the songs that God wrote for us to sing in worship, there's a disturbingly high number of songs that deal with struggling faith, feeling distant, empty, dry, and crushed by our own sin, and deeply hurt by others. Now, why would God write a songbook 
and have a huge number of songs about that is because God's not just sentimental. He's not about an unhelpful religion in the face of our biggest junk. God is saying, bring all that. I got songs for you I wrote about it. And see that I'm your hope. I'm faithful. My promises are still true. If you're skeptical about Christianity, and this is something you're on the fence about, something you're considering, I hope RUF is a safe place for you to process and think about and ask questions of me, the people here. And what I'd ask you to consider tonight, and I think this is actually good for all of us, is this. Is it not true that we're all angling for some kind of security, right? By virtue of working toward our dreams, whatever they are, we hope that we can find comfort and security there. But it's also true that actually we're powerless to find that security. By definition, if it's going to be security, it has to be lasting. Can you agree that all of your work and all of your accomplishment and all of your claim that you can muster in this life, ultimately you lose it? And what the Bible posits is this. The security that we seek is only found in God. And if you want proof that He's faithfully fulfilling His promises from this time forward, all you have to do, if you want proof that God has been executing the exact same promises He made in Genesis 12, from Genesis 12 until present day, 21st century America and California, if you want proof that God's been doing that, what you need to look at is the historic and disastrous moral failures of Christians. What you need to do is you need to examine the historic and massive moral failures of Christians. And I think it, and for this reason, I think at times we often think that the, the moral record of Christians and the failures of the church at different points in history are actually reasons to reject Christianity. And I understand that. It feels like, well, there's hypocrisy there. How could we embrace something that has hypocrisy as a part of it? But I think if you think about it long enough, it's actually quite the opposite. If you contemplate the massive historic moral failures of the church and of Christians, it's not an actually obstacle for faith. It's actually an argument for the biblical faith for this reason. Every human culture, every civilization, every nation state, every movement that's been built up economically, militarily, with all the powers that this world has in it, always eventually falters, even the United States. We all know that at some point this is going to fall apart. We're all terrified it might happen soon, right? Everything eventually comes to ruin. Last semester, uh, or last spring, I took South Carolina students to Athens, Greece, and we, studied, we worshipped on Sunday morning in a church. Um, people have been worshipping in Athens, Greece, Jesus, for 2,000 years. And right across the street from the church were the ruins to the Temple of Zeus. Zeus was it 2,000 years ago. His temple's in ruins. The icons and the temples of this culture, the United States, they'll be in ruins one day will be a note in the history books. This country will. Money's not saving anybody. Relationships aren't giving us security. Education's not giving us lasting security. Every nation, every culture, every civilization, every power structure has eventually collapsed except for one. This weird, wandering rabbi walked around, told a bunch of fishermen, I'm the son of God and I'm dying for the sins of the world. Go tell everybody you know about it. He did that 2,000 years ago. It was bizarre. He had no money. He was not an elite. He wasn't educated. The fishermen went and told everybody that they knew, and this is what's happened. That movement 
over the last 2,000 years has crossed every single socioeconomic boundary. Rich people and poor people have fought to it. It's crossed every ethnic boundary, unlike all the other religions, which are primarily ethnically based. It's gone into every continent, to black and white, Latino, to Asian. It's gone over every geographical boundary. It's gone into cities, and it's gone into the country, into rural cultures, every continent, everywhere. Every other religion has been dominated by one ethnicity. Christianity has gone everywhere. You know, white Westerners are going to be in the minority in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be a shock for us. We think this Christianity thing is a white Western thing. It's going to be surprising when we find out it's not. Here's the point. You have Abraham here. You have David later who's an adulterer. You've got Moses who's a murderer. You have me. You have us. You have the Spanish Inquisition. You have the Crusades. You have Ted Hacker. We can go on all night about the massive historic failures of Christianity. Here's the question. Why is a movement that has no power structure and no money and no military might, no wealth, that's preaching a message that the key to life is weakness and sacrifice? It's preached by a weird guy with weird followers. Why has that movement grown more, reached further, lasted longer, and influenced wider than the greatest economies and the greatest military mights of all of history? There's only one reason why, in the face of all of the moral failure of the people involved, that Christianity has continued to grow and go everywhere. It's because it's true. The horrible things that Christians have done is not an argument against Christianity. It's grievous, and a lot of the charges are true. But it's actually testimony to the faithfulness of God that He uses still broken people to fulfill His promises. That Christianity is not a bunch of fake people whose biggest problem is managing their schedule. It's a story of a God who deeply understands and speaks to and brings a message of forgiveness and healing into the lives of people like us. Really, really deeply messed up people. That Jesus died in the place of judgment for sinners like us, and he rose again, he's making all things new again. Life is hard. My little brother, his wife's 29 years old, and she just started chemo this week. The only answer to that is not money, it's not education, it's not tolerance. If she had a better resume, or if she lost more weight, or if she graduated from Stanford, it wouldn't have made a difference. The only answer to that is Jesus. The only answer to the difficulties of life, the answer to your fears, to our insecurities, to social anxiety, the only answer to Down syndrome, to difficult roommate situations, hard parents and broken hearts, the only answer to abuse and materialism, to poverty and to prostitution, is the love and faithfulness of God to make all things new again. And if you want to get in on this, all that He requires is that we bring all the things we trust Him besides Him to Him and say, this is what I trust in Jesus and I wish... It I wish I didn't. Can you deal with it? He says, I can. Will you bring all your junk? Will you bring all your fears? Will you bring everything you're trusting in besides Jesus? Will you bring it to His perfect love and hear what He has to say? Because John tells us what perfect love does. It casts out all our fears. Let's pray.